This is Undisciplined. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Since 2016, we've seen a record-breaking number of women running for political office. Of course, there's Vice President Kamala Harris, and let's not forget the so-called Year of the Woman in 2018, which ushered in a historic number of female members to the House of Representatives, 144 in all, not to mention the scores of state and local candidates. But what about the women who didn't win their races? Will they lose momentum? In 2018, women lost roughly half of the time. Will this prevent these women from running again? And what about the women who took a risk and ran for the very first time? Political science researcher Rachel Bernhard wanted to understand if the surge in women candidates was merely fleeting. She and her co-author analyzed 70 years of state and local election data from across the country. In total, they crunched the numbers on over 200,000 candidates from 1950 through 2018. What she found? Women were equally as likely as men to run again if they lost the first time they tried. Rachel Bernhard is an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Davis. Rachel Bernhard, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Shoshana. I'm glad to be here. So to start off, like, what got you interested in looking at this specific aspect of women in politics, whether or not women were more or less likely to run again if they lost that first race? Yeah, so this kind of came from just reading the papers. As you mentioned, there was this big surge in women candidates, and I saw a lot of coverage of both political leaders trying to discourage some of these women who didn't have any prior political experience from running out of concern that this would so discourage them from running again that they would be kind of lost to politics. And I just thought, well, that's an empirical question, right? We could go take Mm -hmm. a look and see whether women are more likely to be discouraged by losing a race or losing their first race than men are. And that's how we started on the study. Yeah. And so what's the benefit of looking at historical data to sort of like understand our current situation? Because I think a lot of people, especially in 2016, with the election of President Trump, people viewed it as this sort of special moment in which there was the Women's March on Washington and women were sort of being galvanized, especially there's a lot of focus on suburban women being involved in politics, many of which for the first time, not just running for office, but also volunteering on local campaigns Mm -hmm. where in the past, maybe they haven't. So what's the benefit of looking historically when I think a lot of people were looking at 2016 and then the 2018 midterms as like this like super special type of moment? That's a great question. So Uh, One of the benefits of looking historically is that it can give us some sense of whether there's a general pattern or trend, and that gives us a foundation in turn to assess whether there is something special about, say, Hmm. 2016 or 2018. So if we don't know what our baseline is, it would be really hard to tell whether there's a change from that baseline, right? And this was actually an instance where political science research just hadn't gone out and assessed what the baseline was. So that gave us kind of an opportunity to leap in and say, well, what does the baseline look like? As it turns out, there's not really a difference between men and women candidates in terms of how they respond to a loss. And so that gives us something that then we'll be able to compare against in a few years when we start to have more data on all these women who ran for the first time in, say, 2018 and 2020. Because right now, we can't know yet whether they're going to run again, right? Right. Um, it's, it's too soon, but history gives us some kind of baseline data to say, 
you know, what would we expect going forward? So far, mm-hmm. we don't see any evidence that there's a gender difference, but we could be surprised. That's the fun thing about research. Yeah. So why do you think this question of like, what happens when women lose hasn't been empirically studied like you did in your research? Yeah. Um, I think in part because so many of both the researchers and people who are working at organizations trying to encourage women to run for office are focused on like, let's just get them into the ring at all. Because we (laughs) know that this is part of the pipeline to office, if you will, where a lot of women are trickling out. With some of my other work, I find that it's a lot harder for women who are mothers and who are breadwinners. So they're earning more than half of the income in their family's Mm -hmm. household have a harder time running, which makes sense. Like who is going to pay the mortgage? Who's going to pay for your kid's school tuition, et cetera. These women can't take time off to run. And so this is a big part of the pipeline problem is figuring out how do we bridge women over this gap and into running. I think many people were just focused on the first part of the problem and and didn't even have kind of the time or, or focus yet to look at, okay, now there are lots of women running. What's happening with the ones who are losing. Right, right. Yeah, it's so interesting where it's like we're focused on like step one. You know, step one is just Mm -hmm. getting women to want to run for office. Absolutely. Both wanting to run and and able to run. We know Mm -hmm. from other research that there are some barriers that are unique to women. You know, um, taking care of kids still falls heavily on moms Mm -hmm. and families. And so, you know, in this, this other study I mentioned, what we find is that even women who are super ambitious, you know, they're, they're excited about running for office and that possibility, they just say, who's going to pay the bills? Like, <laughs> it's not right. A, right. a trivial problem. And so there are several different sort of hurdles that women have to clear when they're deciding whether or not to run. Yeah. And so in your study, you sort of separated out and looked at specifically women and men who lost their races with a narrow margin. Like, why did you decide to make that sort of distinction? Oh, that's such a great question. So what we do in this study is compare these narrow winners to these narrow losers to create an experiment-like environment. And what that means is the people who narrowly win, like by 0.05% or 0.1%, and the people who narrowly lose that same amount are really similar to each other. Whereas we know that people who win by 90% or lose by 90%, they're really different from each other, right? Like the people who win by a lot are going to be incumbents. They're raising a lot of money. They're well-known. They Mm -hmm. don't have many challengers. The people who are losing by a lot, you know, maybe it's their first time. They didn't realize what the political geography of their district was like, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So When we compare people who are on the far ends of that sort of vote share spectrum, we're comparing people who are super different. And what we want to be able to focus in on is people who are different only in terms of their gender. Mm. And so if we look at people who just narrowly win and narrowly lose, we're looking at as similar of a group of people as possible on either side of that win-lose threshold. And so that gives us the ability to say, hey, these people are only different in terms of their gender and whether they won or lost the election. So Mm -hmm. it's just a a tool for us to focus in on a really well-matched group of people, just like you would in a twin study, for instance. 
Yeah. And so what I found interesting is that you, in your introduction, you sort of like pull on some social science research suggesting that women are more sensitive to rejection as compared to men. So why is that? Like, what does the research say about potentially why that is? And then also, how might that apply or not apply to running for political office? Yeah, the research about it's it's called rejection sensitivity, as you mentioned, and mm-hmm. it suggests that this is um, a socialized process. We we sort of train women and girls when they're young to care a lot about others' approval. And basically that fear of others' disapproval and sensitivity to rejection in theory could have made women much more sensitive to losing than men are. And we don't find any evidence of that in the paper, which we chalk up to the sort of self-selection process. So by the time a woman overcomes all of these hurdles to Mm -hmm. running for office, she's not a rejection-sensitive sort of person, right? She's Mm -hmm. a special type of woman who, you know, is very ambitious and motivated and not going to be easily discouraged. So that's for us kind of like a nerdy, cool part of the paper, Mm -hmm. too, that what happens in the general population isn't always reflected in a sort of special self-selected population. So it doesn't prove that theory wrong, but rather just says it's not really operating in this context. Yeah. And also that like that idea of women self-selecting for these really competitive careers that they could face rejection. It's not just politics. I mean, that applies to other like exactly upper level things too, right? Exactly. Yeah. So there's um, some research that we cite in the paper that shows similar things for women investment bankers and uh, finance ministers and things like that. Um, The sort of woman who you know, is really gung-ho about investment banking is just going to be kind of different than the average woman in the population. And that's neither good or bad. It just means we're looking at very different groups and types of people. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about why it was important to look at statewide races versus sort of like congressional races or more national positions. Absolutely. So part of it is that both my co-author, Justin De Benedictus Kessner, and I work a lot on local and state politics. So this is an area we're just interested in. And for this particular project, thinking about women who are running for office for the first time, that's where most of these candidates start, right? Especially for women, they're going to run for school board or city council. They don't start by running for Congress. So because our focus was on trying to find people who are running for the first time and seeing, you know, how are they doing? Are they discouraged or not? We wanted to zoom in on races where there are a lot of those people. And that's just very different than Congress. Of course, most of the people who run for Congress have prior political experience. They've run for office before. Right. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, the statewide races. It's at every sort of like level. Absolutely. So we look at like tiny races, you know, like aldermen or Mm -hmm. county positions that don't get a lot of study in political science generally, up to these state Senate races that, especially in the context we look at in California, can require hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to run. So it's a pretty broad swath of offices. And that Mm -hmm. gives us a little more confidence that this isn't just a 
function of like, oh, we looked at this one weird kind of race in upstate Vermont or something. Right. I don't really know how that translates to the rest of the country. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, as you'd mentioned, like working with some of these groups that are encouraging women to run in the first place, and there's like a lot of literature about the reasons why women run for office are typically a little different than men. They're more like issue focused on a specific thing versus like a desire to be in politics generally and that they typically require more encouragement to actually run for office than men do so this research all is kind of suggesting that it's not about like the fear of losing like there's all these other things going on that you've touched on as well so the focus should sort of like remain where it is i guess in terms of the pipeline of getting more women involved in the political process Absolutely. Um, So that's one of the things we conclude in the paper is kind of we need to keep that focus on encouraging women to run. And there's a lot of cool work out there, actually, including in Utah, where I know you're based. There is great work by Jessica Priest and her co-authors, Chris Karpowitz and Quinn Monson at BYU that looks at recruitment of women to the Utah Republican party caucuses. And they find that even just small reminders, getting party Mm -hmm. leaders to encourage women to run or saying that, you know, it's important for a party to have a mix of people of both genders or, you know, diverse backgrounds, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. does help get more women in office. Um, So it's a situation where there's not a silver bullet, right? It's not just fixing childcare or just fixing party recruitment or just telling women that they've got to run more. It's got to be little pieces of all of these to slowly but surely kind of change the system. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about this sort of idea of touch back to what we talked about, I guess, at the beginning of like these specific moments where more women decide to run for office. So like, yeah, in a lot of ways, it feels cyclical and you know, the original year of the woman was 1992 of like, Mm -hmm. they set the record number of women in the US Senate. And then they considered like a lot of people said like 2018 was like the second year of the woman or maybe forgot about the first wave of it entirely, (laughs) um, which happens with news. So what, like, what is it about this research that suggests that like, it isn't sort of likely to fade an interest where we have seen historically that there are like flashpoints that are sort of like political reactions that encourage women to run. And then we don't see a lot of progress like before 2018 or before 2016. I remember looking at research and like the number of women in state legislatures and also in Congress kind of like stayed the same for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, it just kind of stayed low and it kind of takes these little pushes or some reactionary okay. kind of thing, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's good evidence for what you're saying, that there are some moments that really galvanize women. And of course, the events that galvanize women in U.S. politics will sometimes be galvanizing Democratic women to run, Mm -hmm. like, you know, 1992 and 2018, for instance. But there are also times that really galvanize Republican women to run. Mm -hmm. We saw big surges both in 2010. There were a lot of women involved in the Tea Party who ran for office and took office as that movement kind of gained steam. And again, in 2020, we also saw a big jump in the number of Republican women 
So there's definitely this, it's nonlinear, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's just a jump up. Mm -hmm. And the good news is that what we find here suggests we're not going to go back down from this. It's not going to sort of return to where it was, but rather, Mm -hmm. as you say, there may be sort of slow, slow, slow progress where the numbers aren't changing a ton. And then there's Mm -hmm. another jump up, but just getting a bunch of new women in the pool is already kind of helping the situation. Yeah. So what, can you tell me a little bit about what got you interested in studying gender and politics in the first place? Yeah. um, It was kind of a mix of things. I think Um, my first sort of interest, I think came from seeing Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2008. um, And I will say just briefly, like, I thought it was kind of weird. Like she seemed to have to take on all of these like weird positions and traits. And Mm -hmm. this wasn't something that I saw the male candidates in that race doing. And I just thought like, what's going on there? I don't really understand why she kind of has to act the way she's acting. Um, And it got me thinking about, you know, is it easier for some types of women to run for office? What are the types of women that it's easier for? What are those hurdles? Is it the same for women everywhere? Is it the same for Democratic and Republican women? And so I just kind of naturally got interested in exploring all of this variation within groups of candidates that, like women, you know, we know Mm -hmm. they face these hurdles, but kind of documenting what they are and how those are changing over time and look different in different places is a lot of work. (laughs) And it's (laughs) exciting to be part of a big field that is working on that, but we're still really new to studying a lot of these things. Yeah. And I think also there's more attention on thinking about the role that gender plays, especially with Hillary Clinton's original run. And now that we have like the first female vice president, I think like, I think before, obviously not everyone follows like state and local politics, but do you think that sort of people are becoming more interested in thinking about gender now that it's sort of like on a national scale. Yeah. Even when it is all men, there's still gender going on. So um, some of my, my work, for instance, looks at how men kind of position themselves as like more masculine and Mm -hmm. (laughs) seem like a better fit for office. So like we had in my state, California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, ran for office and, you know, he would say things like, you know, don't vote for these girly men, uh, you know, and, and it's a comment that we see on, on lots of male politicians where they mm. also feel this gender pressure that they yeah. have to perform a certain kind of being a man. And so right. some of my work also looks at, well, what happens to men who don't really fit that mold? You know, imagine a man who's a nurse, for instance, running for office. Is he getting held back by that because he doesn't match those gender expectations. Um, So um, the good news and the bad news is like, it affects everybody. It's just in different ways. Yeah. And so your research is sort of not just this specific study that we've been talking about, but like sort of the realm that you're interested in, it sort of straddles different parts of social science, like sociology, social psychology, economics, and then like, of course, political science. So like, what's the benefit of sort of this multidimensional approach of sort of like looking at gender and its role in politics from these sort of like different 
perspectives that are all sort of like looking at similar themes, but have a sort of like slightly different way of viewing the world or understanding how gender works within the political system. Yeah. Um, I do it in part because I like it, but also because I think if you're a researcher doing interdisciplinary work is Mm -hmm. kind of like getting to work with the like basketball all-star team, right? You're getting the best people from all of these different disciplines who all have unique insights and ways of approaching problems that can help you think creatively or outside the box about how to address that problem. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, getting to be on a team that is like the Michael Jordan of psychology and the Steph Curry of economics and so on, and bringing all of those insights together into one place and saying, how can we use that to understand the world around us is, I think, just a really exciting way of doing research. Certainly a lot of the stuff I do falls squarely within political science, but getting to draw together these different theories and ways of approaching problems, I think just ends up creating better research. Yeah. And so you are in the process of writing a book right now. Can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about? Sure. So the book I am working on now is on appearance-based discrimination in politics. And so what I mean by that is how we evaluate different candidates for office based on things like their skin tone or their gender or their age. And what I find in it is that we kind of don't approach everybody equally. And that's perhaps not surprising given that we see this in daily life, not just in politics. But for instance, I find that candidates who have darker skin tones are more likely to be perceived as threatening and people are slow to warm up to them as candidates. And conversely, Hmm. um, for women, especially young, conventionally attractive women, people are more likely to say that they would vote for them than older, less conventionally attractive women. So it's consistent with my other research in that it focuses on what's happening within each of these groups and how does that kind of tell us about how things like race or gender, for instance, are operating in politics, because it's usually not just, uh, you know, oh, either we're super racist, or we're not at all racist, or we're super sexist, or we're not at all sexist, right? But if Mm -hmm. we understand, hmm, you know, it looks like if you're a really attractive younger woman, like Kamala Harris, you're going to do way better than an older uh, you know, less conventionally attractive woman would who espouse the same policies, that tells us something about um, the barriers that still exist for women or people of color. And so that's what this book focuses on. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, um, what do you hope that um, the study we just talked about or your research in general and thinking about how gender influences um, politics and our understanding of candidates I guess maybe what's one thing that people can sort of take away from this interview? You know, we just had some big elections, but as the next election cycle ramps up, what are a couple of things that people can sort of think about um, when they're looking to evaluate candidates in the next race? Yeah, I think going in with a sort of system of like, I want to know where all of the candidates stand on A, B, and C issues and trying to find that information 
out about all of the candidates in the race and then making your choice accordingly as a way to make sure that you're doing this really informed voting rather than either letting yourself get overwhelmed with all of the information that might be out there mm-hmm. or conversely relying too much on that kind of gut reaction of, well, you know, he just looks silly or she doesn't look like she knows what she's doing. Cause when we do those gut reactions, that's when those biases can creep in. And there are all sorts of them, right? I mean, we focused here on gender today, but we know that there are tons of things that people evaluate others on, you know, their clothing, their accent, where they're from, all these sorts of things. And if you don't want that to be kind of secretly putting a hand on the steering wheel, then the thing you really want to do is go in with a list of of sort of priorities for yourself and go off of that. You can't cover all the issues, just pick the things that are important to you, make those your priorities, and uh, find that information out on those folks. I've been talking with Rachel Bernhardt. She's an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Davis. Her latest study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a delight talking to you. Likewise, thank you so much for having me on. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcast. Our producer is Naomi Ward. The theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.